You're listening to the sermon audio from Vertical Church Triad, a vertical church in Jamestown, North Carolina. For more info on our service times and location, visit us at www.verticalchurchtriad.org. You are loved. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. The next four weeks, we're going to discover a lot about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this sermon series that we are kicking off, I guess, for our Advent is called The Baby with Four Names. You know, names are super important. Super important. Um, I remember when my wife, when she was pregnant for each of the four boys, we, we would sit on the couch, right? And, and we would have these hour-long conversations about what we were going to name our boys. And the reason why is because a name has meaning. It has some significance. So my son Isaiah, his name means God saves. Isn't that awesome? I love reminding him of that occasionally. Hey, your name means God saves. My son Owen, his name means young warrior, noble. Uh, my, my son Creed, belief, guiding principle. My son Judah, it means thanksgiving or praise. You know, names mean something. They, they have significance. In the Old Testament, though, names were of most importance. In fact, they would actually have a ceremony after the birth of a child, and they would publicly announce the name of the baby. Kind of like what we do here. We have these baby dedications or whatever. Well, they would have this huge ceremony. They had announced the name of the baby. It was a, it was a huge deal. And, 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 and here's what you have to understand about, about those times. The name meant something. The, the name, really, it was something that the child was to live up to in his younger years and even in his adult years. Maybe the name was for the purpose of hopefully to bring about maybe even some change to the family. Well, still today, when people hear your name, when they hear your name, when they hear Dion, when they hear Levi, when they hear Amber, James, people think something. They think of something. And to test that, this week, our staff, they hit the streets, and they asked people what they thought of the name Jesus Christ. Check this out. Loving and 
Hey, can we thank our church, or, or our staff, I guess, church family? These guys never know what they're getting themselves into from week to week. Uh, but that's our community right there. That's the community that we're a part of. Uh, they were at the place where a lot of us do our Christmas shopping, and they were saying, hey, who is Jesus? The name Jesus brings something to our mind, and, and a lot of those were, were really good answers. I would guess that most of them were, were like accurate descriptions of who Jesus is. But, but what does the name Jesus, what does it really mean? Well, the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the four names of Jesus that are found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, because they mean something for me, and those names mean something for you. So Isaiah chapter 9, look at verse 6. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Here's the four names of this baby in the manger. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this week we kicked off Advent. Advent is all about anticipation. And the context of this verse that we're going to be looking at these next four weeks was anticipation. It was written 800 years before the birth of Christ. Israel, basically, they have once again, they had turned away from God. They were worshiping idols. In fact, they were even consulting false gods and, and they were turning to witchcraft I mean, they were far, far, far from God. They had completely rejected Him. And so Isaiah, the prophet, he's warning God's people to turn back to God before they're judged. I mean, this book is, is basically, it's, it's a warning. Turn back. Turn back before it's too late. However, here's what's going on. The false prophets of the day, because they're false prophets just like today, and they say that they're of the Lord, and that what these false prophets would do is they would mix a lot of truth into their error, just enough to deceive people and to gain a following. And these false prophets of the day, they were telling the Israelites, hey, look, guys, everything's going to be okay. You're fine just the way you are. And Isaiah was like, no, no, it's not okay. In fact, it's going to get really, really ugly. God is going to judge this nation, and it is going to be harsh. And in this book, Isaiah really, he, he outlines, and he gives like some vivid descriptions to Israel for how hard life would be for them because they turned away from God. He talks about this country by the name of Assyria. I mean, you know the capital of Assyria. The capital of Assyria was a place called Nineveh. That was the place that Jonah refused to go because it was such a barbaric group of people. And what Isaiah said is that the Assyrians were going to evade. And these people were no joke. Nahum chapter 3 verse 19 says this about, about the Assyrian captivity. It says, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. That's how Assyria is described. They were barbaric. They were doing some inhumane things that we wouldn't expect even in our culture today. 
So in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet gives Israel some comfort. And the way he gives comfort is by speaking of a coming Messiah. Um, more, more specifically, he talks about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which says that a child would be born and that child would establish a kingdom and that kingdom would endure forever. Read all of Isaiah chapter 9. That's the promise. That's the covenant. And he describes this child that is going to be born, this one who's going to rule the nations, and he gives this child four names. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here's what we have to understand about this passage of Scripture just before we dive into the names of Jesus Christ. For 740 years, because this prophecy was 740 years before the birth of Christ. This is 740 B.C. For 740 years, these were the verses that brought comfort to Israel. This is what brought comfort to Israel. And in fact, I would even say this. Even when Jesus came into the world 740 years later, Israel's circumstances were still the same. Assyria wasn't ruling them now. Now it was the Roman government. And with the oppression of Rome, there was turmoil. The economy was in the tank. Taxes were overbearing. 80% of the people within the Roman Empire were slaves. No hope. 740 B.C., no hope. Christ arrives, no hope. And here we are 2,000 years later. In, in some ways, our world today looks a lot like it did back then, right? Slipping economy. We have this new COVID variant called Omicron. One church member said you can't go to Orlando anymore because every time you go there, there's a new COVID variant. <laughs> You're going to have to send me on a trip then, okay? Or I'm going back. Now think about our society. We need hope. And think about what happened this week in Michigan, that shooting. Oh, how atrocious that was. The violence never ceases. The, the reality is, we all know the Christmas season, um, depression and suicide skyrockets. We need hope. People need comfort. And the first name to describe the long-awaited baby is Wonderful Counselor. Ever think about that? Wonderful Counselor? The Hebrew word for counselor is one who always knows what to do. That's the Hebrew word for counselor. Get rid of your dear Abby, dear Annie, Dr. Phil, Oprah. Are they even still on? I'm dating myself, I know. Every once in a while I'm like, you forget how old you are these days, you know? But when we hear the word counselor, like understand the biblical definition here for counselor. The Hebrew word one who always knows what to do. Always knows what to do. He's able to advise. He, he directs well the actions of others. That's what it means here. And that word wonderful, that precedes the word counselor, had a way stronger meaning than it does for us today. Because today I would say, like, when we hear that word wonderful, we think, like, pleasant or lovely, right? Like, so, like, even some of you this week, we've been like, man, isn't this weather wonderful? 
man, three weeks before Christmas, 73 degrees? Like, this is why you live in North Carolina, people. Like, we have some people over here that just moved from New Jersey. Yeah, this is where it's at, right here. Okay, I'm just telling you. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful job that our worship team did this morning. Wonderful. But that word wonderful is far from what Isaiah meant when he was providing the hope of the Messiah. In Hebrew, that word wonderful meant divine. It meant miraculous. It meant incomprehensible. It exceeds expectation. It's inexplicable. The wonderful counselor, it it literally translates in Hebrew, a wonder of a counselor. A wonder of a counselor. Meaning, he never gets it wrong. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. So, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. I'm just trying to get you to understand how special this verse is right here. I have a master's degree, and um, um, my, my master's degree, the emphasis is in counseling. Okay? It's in counseling. And so, I counsel a lot of people. And at the end of every counseling situation, some of you have been in the room with me, and at the end, before the counseling, we pray, and then at the end of the counseling, we pray, and at the end of the counseling, I pray something like this. Lord, in, in these many words that I've spoken today to this person, anything that is not of you, anything that is not consistent with your word, anything that will cause harm instead of help, Lord, retract that from their mind. And and here's why I pray that, because I know I'm not a wonderful counselor. I'm not a wonderful counselor. I'm a biblical counselor. I give people instruction based upon God's Word. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but I'm not the wonderful counselor. Jesus, though, Listen, church family, you can trust Him every time. You can, listen, listen, you can be sure, you can be sure that unlike human counselors, like He really understands your situation. He really understands it. Because sometimes, like, you you just don't understand my situation. Like, you've never been through this, so you can't really understand it. You really can't give me the counsel I need. No, He understands your situation. He's sovereign over your situation. And you can be certain that the instruction He gives will not only be right and with your best interests at heart, but that it will bring His Father glory. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah is reminding us that when we run to Him as wonderful counselor, we will experience comfort. That's the context. You run to Jesus, you're going to get comfort. So if you're a note taker, here's the big idea. Comfort comes when Christ is my counselor. That's the big idea. Comfort comes when Christ is my counselor. This morning we're going to look at three counseling situations where Jesus was the counselor. And really these counseling situations, really they give us three reasons to make Christ our wonderful counselor this morning. Number one, He is the most qualified counselor. Seek Him. He is the most qualified counselor. Seek Him. Some of you have come here this morning and you're hurting. You need comfort. 2022 has been a hard year for you. Maybe you've experienced sickness, or you've seen loved ones experience sickness, or even death. 
Maybe there's financial struggles. Maybe there's a marital issue, a family issue going on in your world right now. But you need comfort. And I don't know about you, but when I need comfort, honestly, a lot of times I go to a lot of different places for counsel so that we can get our comfort. And and sometimes it might be a self-help book. And maybe it's a personal experience that we think back upon, or maybe it's a counselor that we go to, and there's nothing wrong with the counselor. I just said I have a master's degree in counseling. Counseling's helpful. In the multitude of counselors, there's great wisdom. But Christ is the most qualified. And what Isaiah wants you to understand here in Isaiah chapter 9 is he is the dispenser of the best action plan for your life. And you know who knew that? You know who knew that was a guy by the name of Nicodemus. For us to understand just how qualified Jesus is as a counselor, we need to understand this man in John chapter 3 named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, if you recall, he he was a wealthy man. He was a wise man. He was an honorable man in that society. He was an elite man. He was a Pharisee. And not only was he a Pharisee, but he was an influential Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus is described as a ruler of the Jews. But interestingly, as much knowledge as this man had, and as much clout that this man had, this man recognized, I'm missing something. I'm missing something. In the midst of all his moral uprightness, in the midst of the fact that he kept the law fairly well, he was a ruler of the law, he realized something's not right. Like, I am not the standard, and I know that if I were to die today, this God that he believed in, he was a Jew, he believed in Yahweh, this God that he believed in, he knew that he would not be accepted into his kingdom. That's John chapter 3. So what does he do? What does he do in John chapter 3? He seeks out Jesus. And John explains why he sought out Jesus. It's because the wonderful counselor is qualified. Look at John chapter 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, <laughs> we know. We know. Like we, I, I've been playing charades. I've been acting like I have it all together, but like the, the light's beginning to go off for Nicodemus. He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. I don't have time to break down every single word, but remember the tension in the day when Jesus was confronting the religious rulers. Ultimately, that's what crucified Jesus on the cross. The confrontation The fact that they were teaching law instead of grace. And here's Nicodemus, like the elite guy. He had a whole lot to lose. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
saying, you're the wonderful counselor. You're the most qualified counselor. And I want to hear what you have to say because I know that whatever you are dispensing is true. And, and, and Paul, in his letter to, to the Colossian Christians, he kind of breaks down this whole idea of, of Jesus as the dispenser, as the qualified counselor. If you remember the, the, the book of Colossians, we studied a few years ago, and I don't expect you to remember everything, or maybe you're just diving in for the very first time, and you're like, this is my first day at church, what is Colossians? Here's what Colossians is. Colossians is a letter in the Bible. Paul wrote it to a church that was located in Colossae. And in this letter, Paul is reminding the Colossian Christians, the people who trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he's reminding them of the union that they have with Christ upon their salvation. And, and Paul, in the letter, he's calling attention to the reality that they now have something better than the human philosophy of the day. And that's exactly what Nicodemus was realizing. Like, all this philosophy, all this junk that he was dispensing, that was based upon some Old Testament law, but the fact is, is he was adding to the law. That's what legalists do. The Colossian Christians, Paul is calling their attention to the fact that, that, hey, listen, we have something way better than human philosophy for life's difficulties. You have access to God incarnate. You have access to Jesus Christ. And Paul writes this to the to, to, to the Colossian Christians to remind them of this wonderful counselor that had already come now that Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. He says in Colossians 2.3, this is an awesome verse, he says, in whom, referring to Christ, he says, in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's saying that Jesus, Paul's saying, Jesus is the reservoir where all the treasures and all the precious things are collected and stored. The, the treasures are the place in which everything is collected and laid up. And what Paul's saying is Christ lacks no treasure that is of value. That's what Paul's saying there. An old Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson, he wrote a book called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. He writes this, No country has all the commodities of its own growth, but Christ has all kinds of fullness fullness of merit, of spirit, of love. I love this last part. He says, he has a treasury adequate for all our needs. The wonderful counselor, he has a treasury adequate for all our needs. What kinds of treasures are we talking about? Hang with me. You better write them quick. He gives hope to the hopeless. He gives encouragement to the discouraged. He gives courage to the fearful. He gives strength for the weak. He gives wisdom for life's complexities. He gives security in the instability. He gives rest for the weary. He gives healing for the hurting. He gives mercy to the failing. He gives sympathy to the sorrowful. He gives direction to the wanderer. He gives thought to the trial. He gives guidance to the confused. He gives salvation for the sinner. He is the treasure. He is the wonderful counselor. And that's what Paul's calling our attention to this morning. That's what you have when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene in Luke chapter 2. That's what Israel had to look forward to. And that's what we get to look back to. And he is in our midst this morning. We are the body of Christ. His Holy Spirit lives inside of you. J. Vernon McGee, 
says this, all that we need, all that we need. Feel like you have a lot of needs this Christmas? You need some rest? You need some sympathy? You need some security? You need some guidance? All that we need is in Christ. And he says, if only we could learn that. He is the reservoir of all knowledge. And listen, loved ones, the only way you can experience him as a wonderful counselor is if you first know him as your Savior. Have you sought him? Like Nicodemus, have you come to the point where you, you realize your personal goodness is not good enough? And that you need the righteousness of the one that hung on that cross. That's where the wonderful counselor, that's when he comes into your life. Have you sought him? Comfort comes when Christ is my counselor. Three reasons to make Christ your wonderful counselor. Number one, he's the most qualified. Seek him. Number two, he is the most caring counselor. Embrace him. We learn this about Jesus in a second counseling situation. It's in John chapter 4. Many of you are familiar with this story. It's probably the favorite of many people in the room, I'd imagine. This is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman who was at the well. Remember that one? It's a good one, isn't it? But again, before we just dive into the story, we have to understand the context. Unlike Nicodemus, who was viewed as religious, this woman was viewed as a reprobate. Unlike Nicodemus, who was elite, she was a nobody. Unlike Nicodemus, who was rich, she was poor. Unlike Nicodemus, who was a learned theologian, she was an uneducated woman. And if you know anything about the social class back then, a Samaritan woman was like the worst of the worst as far as an Israelite was concerned. She would have truly been considered in this situation, in John chapter 4, people would have looked at her at the well and would have been like, gross, disgusting. Did you see what was at the well today? She was truly a social outcast. She wasn't part of the social elite like Nicodemus. But the fact that Jesus would reveal himself to this woman tells us something about the heart of God, doesn't it? Tells us that Jesus' love for humanity has zero boundaries. His love transcends all barriers of race and religion and ethnicity and gender. Jesus' love is unconditional. It's an indiscriminate kind of love. It's an attractive kind of love. It's always unconditional, and it's always available. 
In fact, that's the reason why Jesus went through Samaria that day. Every other Jew, you know what Jews would have done? They would have like, and, and, and going through Samaria was the most direct route to get where they were going, which I believe is on their way to Galilee, the text says. Going through Samaria was the most direct route, but what Jews would often do because they were such bigots is they would go around the city and add hours to their travel just so they wouldn't have to be around these certain types of people. But what does Jesus do? Who was Jewish? Who grew up hearing all this nonsense about these Samaritans? He says, no, we're going to Samaria, boys. Disciples were a little shocked. We won't talk about that today. You can read it on your own. But he's going through Samaria. He stops at Jacob's well, the text says. And when the immoral Samaritan woman shows up to fill her water, what does Jesus do? He demonstrates care. Again, in the context of the culture, men would not even speak to a woman in public. He would hardly even talk to his own wife in public. And and certainly, remember John chapter 3, how did, how did Nicodemus, or, or, or what did he call Christ? Remember what it said? He called him, begins with an R, rabbi. It was a rabbi. Rabbi was a teacher. Teacher. A, a teacher of the law of God in the minds of the Pharisees. You would never, Pharisees would never talk to an immoral person. They're not good enough. But the wonderful counselor, he breaks all social barriers, doesn't he? Why? Why does he break all social barriers? Because he cared. And the woman on the receiving end of it, she's shocked. Look at verse 9, John chapter 3. It's on the screen. It says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds this in parentheses. Like this wasn't part of the conversation, but he wants us to get it. He wants us to get who this wonderful counselor is that we miss out seeing every Christmas. He puts little parentheses in there. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Like, this isn't supposed to happen. People aren't supposed to love this way. But his care doesn't stop with just engaging her socially, because that's a social conversation. There's nothing spiritual about that right there. Need a drink. So we, we do social stuff here at this church, just so you know. Like we, I think it's really good to do some social stuff. I love it when you guys like bring in the green bags and do Operation Christmas Child. My, my, my dream someday is that we'll have a food pantry here and counseling center here. And, you know, you know, social is so important, but social should never, it should always lead to the spiritual. Let's just frame it that way. And that's where Jesus is going. After showing care by demonstrating love, Jesus takes it a step further. He engages her spiritually. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
So, so what's going on here? He's offering her living water. He's offering her salvation. He's offering her forgiveness of her sin. He's offering her freedom from the condemnation that she's experiencing on a daily basis when she goes out in public and even within her own home by the men who treated her immorally. He's offering her the new life that comes through him. See, what's going on here is the wonderful counselor is seeing this woman who showed up at the well for who she was. A soul that had been parched. A soul that had been drinking from all the empty cisterns with the five husbands and all the things that the world promises that will bring satisfaction, illicit sexual relationships, parties, all this stuff that the world feeds us. It's going to be awesome. And he looks at her and he sees a soul that had been drinking from the cisterns and, and the soul is parched. And it was dying. And notice even her response. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or I have to come here to draw water. Like she's just not getting it. And I would say this, sadly, this is the response of so many in counseling rooms. This is like a normal, this is like, yep, this is typically what happens. Don't change me, change my life situation. I don't want to change. I want you to change them. I'm not here for change. Oh, hold, hold on. You're coming at me? Hey, listen, here's the, here's the deal. I, I say this all the time. Um, you can't, marriage counseling, you can't change your spouse. You can only change you. And, and this lady's struggling with this. She, she's like, I just want my life situation changed. Give me just enough Jesus so that I don't have to keep coming to this well. <laughs> like, like, I don't have to show up at the well again? Like, you're Houdini? You're going to give me lots of stuff? Christmas every day? I don't have to come out here at 12 o'clock every day and be harassed by people? And condemned by people? Change my life situation. Don't change me. That's her attitude. And of course, Jesus, he takes it a step further and he reveals to this woman, her heart, her need for repentance by calling attention to her sin, right? Like you have five husbands. And, and, and notice, and, and i got to skip some stuff, but when Jesus did that, she repents. She repents. She repents of her sin. She gets saved. And, 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 and listen, this is awesome. She starts when, when, when she, see, see, here's the thing about, about repentance and salvation. Like you're a new creature. You're, you have a whole new you. And when, when she repents, she starts asking all kinds of spiritual questions. Verses 20 through 26, I frame it this way. Where do I go to church? It's like, where do I worship? Where do I go? Like they said worship over here. They said worship. Where do I go to church? And then in verses 39 through 42, like she's telling her friends about her new life in Christ. That's what saved people do. Save people. Hey, listen, listen, listen. If you're truly of the Lord, you're a child of God, Save people. When you experience life change, you worship, you worship, and you witness. What do you mean? She got saved, 
And she said, I'm going to worship. And I'm going to tell others I'm going to witness. Here's the point. When she experienced a wonderful counselor's care, she embraced him entirely. The information, the information that Christ can perfectly direct my life does no good unless we embrace him. So, for example, wisdom says that I need to exercise regularly. Now, not a trick question. You've got to talk back to me. I prepped you. I'm expecting a public answer, an audible answer. It's yes or no. You ready? <laughs> you get, that was unbelievable. That describes our church right there. One person. Yes, and I'm not even sure if I should be saying that right now. You guys are awesome. Thanks for putting up with me. All right, here we go. Ready? It's getting better. If wisdom says that I need to exercise regularly, have I embraced it when I understand exercise as important? Yes or no? <laughs> oh, man, you guys are... I'm going to answer the questions for us, okay? Here we go. Relax as you were. Okay, wisdom says that I need to exercise regularly. Have I embraced it when I understand exercise as important? No. Knowing exercise is a fact isn't embracing something. Have I embraced it when I go down to Triad Fitness and join the gym? No. You need to stop answering, okay? I'm trying to help all of you. What if I have a plan? Have I embraced it? No. What if I show up every day for the first week? No. I've embraced it when it becomes a part of my lifestyle. When the alarm goes off at 4.45 tomorrow morning for me, I know I've embraced it when I get out of bed and go to the gym again. And I share that illustration with you because that's what it looks like to embrace the wisdom of Christ. You can only call him wonderful counselor if you embrace his wisdom for your life every day, regardless of situation. Not some of Jesus, all of Jesus. So let me ask you, have you embraced his wisdom for your family situation? The marital strife that you're experiencing, the sickness that your family is going through, have you embraced his wisdom? The finances, the friendships, the future for grad school and the new job or the boyfriend and the girlfriend, you know, have you embraced his wisdom? To embrace Jesus Christ as your wonderful counselor, it's to make his counsel your lifestyle. That's exactly what the woman of the well did in John 4. Look at verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of the woman's testimony. Way out of time. I think the seconds on the clock speed up just on Sunday morning. It just happens every week. So I'm going to move on. Comfort comes when Christ is my counselor. He's the most qualified counselor. Seek him. He's the most caring counselor. Embrace him. Reason number three, to make Christ your wonderful counselor, he is the most concerned counselor. Trust him. Next counseling situation is in the next chapter, John chapter 5. In John 5, Jesus in Jerusalem, he's at a place called Bethesda. 
Bethesda, awesome. Um, names mean something, right? Isn't that where we started this morning? Names mean something. Here's what Bethesda means. It means house of mercy. Isn't that awesome? House of mercy. You can't name a kid Bethesda. All right, you can do what you want. I've heard some weird names out there. Just do what you want, and, but just let them know it means house of mercy, okay? But in Bethesda was a pool where the water was fed by a spring, and it had, like, the spring would shoot up this, like, this red tint um, from the minerals, and, and it would start bubbling in the water from time to time. And it was believed that when the water bubbled, the first person in the pool would be healed. And so in John chapter 5, there's this man at this pool, and this man, the text says, he's been paralyzed for like 38 years. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in the situation of this 38-year-old man for 30 years. Like, he has no shot at being healed. Not one person was ever concerned about him. In fact, he was viewed as, as an outcast because in their minds, they figured either he or most likely his parents, since he was born this way, they had committed such an atrocious sin that they're not worthy. And um, he was viewed as an outcast. Most likely, the fact that he was there alone that day indicates that he was probably abandoned at birth. Had no family. He has no friends. And because of his handicap, like he has no shot at getting in this pool. Just like the Israelites that Isaiah is writing to in Isaiah chapter 9. Just like the people that you and I interact with in our cul-de-sac. This guy has no hope. But lo and behold, who shows up at the pool of Bethesda, right? The wonderful counselor. And here's the thing about the wonderful counselor. This isn't just his profession. Like, he genuinely loves all people. He loves hurting people. And he sees this man, and he has concern. In John chapter 5, verse 6, he looks the man in the eye. He's a social outcast. Hey, listen, can, can we just get real with each other? I want to encourage you. When you see someone who has a physical ailment that is very obvious, look him in the eye and say, hello, how are you? I know, it's kind of uncomfortable, right? It is. Jesus gave them that look, and he looked them in the eye, and he demonstrates care. And what does he say in John chapter 5, verse 6? He says, hey man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And the thought of a man healing him never crossed his mind. I mean, he'd been to all the doctors, no help. I mean, he just wanted to get in the pool when the water started bubbling. And now here's the wonderful counselor. And the wonderful counselor is in his presence. And the man is trusting in the very wrong thing. And that's so many of us today. When the trials and the difficulties come, we put our trust in the wrong thing. We put our trust in self-help books. And I said a lot of nice things about counselors before, and I have a master's degree in counseling, but we put our trust in sympathetic counselors, and we put our trust in personal experience and in maybe the pay raise. 
And we must understand that Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is the dispenser of the best action plan for our life. Notice what Jesus says, John 5, 8. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. What does the man do? He exercises faith, and he obeys the commands of Christ, and at once the man was healed. Did you catch that? The moment he puts his faith and trust in Jesus, instead of all this other nonsense that will not give him hope, and will not heal him. He puts his faith and trust in Jesus. And he takes up his bed and he walks. And listen, just as Jesus, the wonderful counselor, was concerned for this man, he's concerned for each and every one of us that are here this morning. Isn't that awesome? And for those of you who don't know him as Lord and Savior, he wants you to put your trust in him today. That's why he came. That's why he came. But for those of us who already know Christ, He wants to be your wonderful counselor. Real quick, I'm going to fly through these. But how then do we put our trust in Jesus as our wonderful counselor? Like, that's a fair question. Like, how do I do that practically? And we're going to go quick. How do I do that? Five actions. This is what it looks like to turn and trust Him. Here it is right here. This is that practical application. This is it right here. Number one. Make an appointment each day and show up. Like if you're going to go to a counselor, what do you do? You make an appointment, right? And they can't help you unless you show up. Well, how about this? You're trusting in Jesus and you know, all of everything that we're talking about this morning, it starts with make an appointment each day and show up. James chapter 4 verse 8 says this, draw near to God, draw near to God, and he will say it with me, draw near to you. The reason why you might not have that wonderful counselor in your life is because you haven't made the appointment and showed up. Number two, share your problems through prayer. Share your problems through prayer. I love Jeremiah 33.3. I say it all the time, I know. Call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and hidden things that you have not known. James 1.5. I'm, I'm trying to talk fast. 1.5. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So how do I trust Christ? Like, make an appointment and show up. Just like you would with any counselor, share your problems through prayer. Number three, own your struggles by way of confession. Like, here's the deal. When I counsel people, if you don't own it, like, we're going nowhere with this. Own your struggles. Own your sin. And it's the same thing with a wonderful counselor. Like, if you want him ministering in your life, own your sin. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's not, who wants mercy? Mercy in the house. Mercy in the house. Every hand should be up. Get it up. Get it up. Get up. Mercy in the house. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Number four, Listen and apply his counsel from his word. Listen, it does no good if, if I meet with you and I'm giving you information and you don't listen and apply. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching. It teaches what is true, for rebuking. It corrects our conduct, for correcting. It restores us to the right condition, for training in righteousness. It shows us how to live so that the man of God may be equipped and perfect. Listen to the Word and apply the Word. 
great way to apply the word is when we kicked off our small groups in January, by the way. We'll apply this. Last but not least, follow his leading through his spirit. How do I trust Christ to become my wonderful counselor? Follow his leading. John 14, 26 says, he will teach you all things. Galatians 5, 16 says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. You want counsel? Listen, the counsel, Christian, it's available. 2,000 years ago, before you were even born, God sent a wonderful counselor so that when you experience the hard seasons of life that are bound to come, you can have comfort. That's why I came. You can always have the comfort of someone to listen to you and to encourage you and to guide you. Ultimately, the season of Advent is about anticipation of the Messiah. As Levi put it so well this morning, the anticipation of the second coming. So that we can experience His comfort for all eternity. What a wonderful counselor. Let's stand together. Let's worship Him.